Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, good morning to everybody on Zoom as well. Uh, if you would, I put out the sermon handouts. I was a little late on that. I apologize, but those are over on the resource table. If you want all the passages we're going to be looking at uh, and some blanks to fill out, that's over there. And go ahead and grab a Bible and open with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Acts 21 through 12. First part of Acts chapter 20. So um, it's always good because Acts is a narrative. It's always good to kind of provide some context for our passage or else we kind of lose ourselves in the, in the sweep of, historical, of Luke's historical account in the book of Acts. So the second half of Acts, starting in chapter 13, uh, it includes Paul's three missionary journeys. That's kind of how Acts is structured as he moves out to the ends of the earth bringing the gospel. And then that is followed at the end of Acts by his arrest in Jerusalem at the end or after his third missionary journey, gets arrested in Jerusalem, and then he gets conveyed to Rome where he'll spend two years under house arrest when he appeals to Caesar. And so today we're looking at that third missionary journey, which occurred after uh, probably uh, up to a three-year stay in Ephesus. So his third journey is kind of odd because he gets to Ephesus and then he stays put for you know two and a half to three years, Okay. Uh, after that, he leaves, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And before leaving Ephesus, just to kind of provide you some New Testament context here, before he leaves Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians to the church that he founded in Corinth on his previous missionary journey. And then it seems, and people have a little bit of scholarly debate on this, of when all the letters were written. But from, from what I can understand, he then leaves Ephesus. He ends up looking for Titus, who's on his way back from Corinth, meets him in Macedonia, which is like Philippi. And that's, I think, where he writes 2 Corinthians. And then he gets to Corinth, as we'll see in today's passage. He stays there for three months. And that seems to be where he writes the letter to the Romans, whom he had not met yet. And so that's what's happening. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans are all happening in this same historical period. So when I was reading today's passage, and for sermons, I, I just end up reading these passages over and over again. But as I was reading this passage in Acts 20, and also these letters that Paul wrote during, his, during this part of his journey, I, I'm always struck by how Paul seemed to spend so much time with so many people. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by that, whether he's traveling with them or whether he's just meeting them in some random city, random city he ends up being in. But in the final chapter of that letter he writes to the Romans during this journey, if you count it, in, in Romans 16, people talk about Romans 8 and all these different great chapters in Romans, don't get me wrong. I tend to gravitate towards Romans 16, uh, which is sometimes a throwaway. We're like, oh, it's just a list of names. I'm like, yeah, it's a list of names. He has 35 people besides Jesus Christ himself who are named men and women in that section of Romans. And it just goes to show you how relational these people were in the, in the early church in the first century in Paul's journeys. And those included, actually, when you go back and look at First and Second Corinthians and Romans, you'll see some of the names we're going to see in, Paul, or in Luke's account of Paul's journey today in Acts. You'll see those same names showing up in Paul's letters when he references those individuals. So I think that's pretty neat. Uh, Paul was always with people. You don't see Paul sp- spending alone time right? Sometimes he'll go to spend time with Jesus or spend time in prayer, but when he's traveling and when he's ministering in the cities, he's with people. Uh, wherever he went, he's with people, and, and he's also never wasting time. That's something that we can all walk away with for application. As Paul, and he didn't know that he was only going to live for less than 10 years after this. He didn't know that, but he knew that, that, that 
time was not to be wasted, all right? So just like Wayside, with our values of biblical, relational, and purposeful, today's passage reminds us that Paul is both relational and he's very purposeful with his time in relationships. So in our modern American culture, and I don't have to make a case for this, we are absolutely inundated with messages that emphasize independence and autonomy. Again, I don't have to make a case for that. You know this because you watch these commercials and you hear these messages and you're, you're influenced by them. But it's all about being independent, and that's particular to Americans too in a certain way, rugged individualism, but also this autonomy, this personal autonomy that we do what we want when we want, however we want. Um, and it's no wonder we sometimes feel alone and isolated. Even when we're surrounded by people, we can feel alone and isolated. Uh, and it's no wonder that we waste so much time pursuing our own ends. I do that too. I'm not just beating up on y'all for this. Like Because of that autonomy value that we hold to tacitly, we end up spending so much time just pursuing our own ends instead of prayerfully considering what God's plans and purposes are for our life. And today's passage is a really great encouragement as we face those particular temptations. And to use this popular sports saying, I think Jake Gyllenhaal quoted it too. I'll just say it's a popular sports saying. But Paul lived his Christian life like an athlete who doesn't hold back, but leaves everything on the field by the end of the game. He leaves it all out on the field. That's how he lived his life, and that's how he did ministry. And like Paul, we are all called to Christian ministry. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's not like a category for like the bench sitter, okay? Uh, To go back to the sports analogy, like everyone's involved, everyone's ministering. All right, we're all members in the body of Christ with different functions and different ministries and different effects, as Paul points out. But we all are doing Christian ministry in some sense, okay? Um, so today's big idea is this. Christian ministry is, if, if you'll allow me this analogy, Christian ministry is a team sport with a time limit. There's a buzzer. So like Paul, let's group up and get going. That's the big idea today. Let's group up and get going because Christianity, the Christian life, Christian ministry, it's a team sport and there's a time limit. In our passage, we see the importance of both forming a team. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then also finding time, making time. Oftentimes we don't find it. We have to make it. Making time to spend with others, which is what Christian ministry is really all about. Okay, is, is serving others and making time for others. All right. So let's look at that first point. Christian ministry is a team sport, so we need to group up. In verses 1 through 6 of our passage, we see Paul doing ministry, but again, he's never doing ministry alone. You need to know this about Paul. And this is a really helpful reminder as we all engage, like I said, in Christian ministry at some level or another. If you walk away from here going, yes, I'm supposed to be engaged in Christian ministry because I'm a father of Jesus, but you don't walk away from here going, and it's important that I'm a part of the team, then we've got a problem. This is a helpful reminder because we're all invested at some level or another, and we need each other. So what? We are called to support and encourage other Christians. All right, now this, this ministry of supporting and encouraging other Christians is something we are all called to, even though some of us are especially gifted. Just because Paul talks about the spiritual gift of hospitality or this or that, doesn't mean that we all don't have the, the uh, admonition in Scripture or the exhortation in Scripture to show hospitality. And the same is true with encouragement, right? Just because some people are especially gifted to do this doesn't mean that we're not all called to do this as Christians. Um, this, this ministry of supporting and encouraging other Christians. And this is exactly what Paul's doing 
in, in a lot of the context of his missionary journeys. Look at verses 1 and 2. It's talking about last week when he had the uproar with the silversmith and, and the crowd, the mob in Ephesus. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had encouraged them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Can you put up, can you jump back to the map real quick? I failed to point that out. So he stayed in uh, Ephesus, which you'll see in Asia Minor. It's kind of right here, left of center. And, and that's where he was for like up to three years. And then he goes up, and that's Macedonia. It's not quite the, the modern Macedonian political boundaries, but it's kind of northern Greece. Um, so he goes up there, and he goes to Philippi, and then he's going to come down to what they talk about as Greece, which is Achaia, and that's down here with Athens and uh, Corinth, okay? So he leaves to go to Macedonia. Uh, verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So when he had encouraged them and when he had given them much encouragement, that's just two verses, all right? So Paul's encouragement, there's different nuances to this word in the Greek, right? But, but when we're talking about Paul encouraging in this specific context, we're talking about him strongly urging, or sometimes you'll see the word exhorting in your translations, his fellow Christians to persevere in following Christ. Because think about it, it's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. In fact, it's impossible. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes he's working through God's people to encourage us to stick to it to stay married or to persevere in that relationship that's hard or to do this or that or the other thing. But that's encouragement. <clears throat> it's not just patting us on the back. There is an element of that same word that can mean to comfort. But Paul is oftentimes just urging and exhorting the people just to stay following Jesus and just to stay together in the church, you know. Uh, and, and we all need that kind of encouragement, right? So we're all called to support and encourage other Christians, even if we never travel abroad as Paul did. We can't keep doing the, well, that's Paul. You know, well, that's Paul's ministry, right? There are differences to his apostolic ministry and what we're called to. But at the end of the day, we all are called to support and encourage each other just like he was doing, all right? So we need to be doing that. But folks, listen up. It goes both ways. We also need the support and encouragement of other Christians, we absolutely need that in our lives. Paul's team approach is a really good model for all of us to follow. So look with me at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. I'll kind of break this up in chunks. So in verse 3, let's look at that. I'm not going to read it, but basically Paul is threatened by some of his fellow Jews who want to harm him. So he, he faced persecution from some of the uh, uh, Jews in the synagogue in Corinth. They brought him before Gallio on his second missionary journey when he first established the church there. And he's still getting, uh, 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 he's still, they're still attempting to interrupt his, his apostolic ministry. Um, and in this, in this case, they form a plot. And, and this, this has the denotation of wanting to bring him harm. So he's going to set sail from the port city outside of Corinth and they want to do harm to him. Okay. So he's threatened. And now here's the interesting thing that Luke doesn't actually mention right here. He'll mention it later in Acts. But Paul is carrying a bunch of cash. So when you look at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans, one of the aspects of this missionary journey is to collect donations from all these Gentile churches that he had planted on his second missionary journey and to bring back all that money 
to the church in Jerusalem because they had faced a famine and there was a lot of poor Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem in the church. And so he was going to collect funds from all these churches, bring them back to the church in Jerusalem. That's one of the reasons he wants to get back to Jerusalem. So the guy has a lot of valuables on him, okay? Uh, And he's got people plotting to do him harm. So this is all kind of working against him. So having a team of traveling companions really did help to not only encourage him and relieve him probably, but it also provided safety. It was just a safeguard against him getting waylaid on the journey. And then we see in verse 4, these are the benefits of having that team of traveling companions. We actually get a list of these guys. And there's seven men mentioned here. Most of them have uh, Greek names, so probably most of them Gentiles, we would imagine. Uh, And there were others, too, like Titus, I mentioned, and Luke, uh, who's writing the account. When you see the we and the us's, that's Luke writing that I was with them. All right, so there's other people, too, that are traveling with them. But these seven are named. And again, they're probably mostly Greeks. They seem to represent the churches. Because you look at them, and what does it say next to their names? It says where they're from, right? And so when you look at where they're from geographically, you get the sense that these seven men are are representing different, primarily Gentile churches around the Aegean Sea, probably the ones that had given the donations, the funds, to Paul, and then they sent along one or two two guys with them to go with Paul uh, to represent those churches that had made donations to the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so there's a representative aspect of this as well. So this team of men is, if you want to think of it like this, these seven men are a symbol of how God had faithfully worked through Paul to establish all these new Gentile churches all around the Aegean Sea in Macedonia and Asia Minor and Greece and Galatia. Uh, So they're a symbol of God's faithfulness, but they're also a symbol of how God was continuing to faithfully work through those Gentile churches and their generosity to bless and care for the Jewish Christians in the, in the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem who are facing hard times. So not only are these seven men a, a symbol representing God's faithfulness to even bring people to faith in Christ and establish churches, primarily Gentile, but again, it's showing, it's also a symbol of the unity of the church, of Jew and Gentile coming together as one, the dividing wall coming down and being united, even though the congregations were mostly Gentile or mostly Jewish. So this is a really important symbol. All right. Verses five and six, we also see how teamwork provides a strategic advantage for accomplishing God's purposes. Paul can't do it all on his own, right? He's not the, the lone ranger Christian, you know, He needs others. And so how does that strategic advantage for accomplishing God's purposes work out just even in the context of our verse? Now, this takes a little speculation. I always do my best to tell you when I'm about to speculate. Okay, so this is not explicit in the text. But look at what he says. He says that he lists this, this group of guys, and then he says that these went ahead to Troas in Asia. Now, there's scholarly debate on exactly how many of those names, but at least it seems the last two names, Tychicus and Trophimus, who were from where? They're from Asia, right? Asia Minor. So he sends his two Asian traveling companions ahead to Asia to go get some stuff going, get some stuff ready. It was insanely expensive to travel on ships, and he knew that they were going to take a ship all the way back to, to uh, 
the uh, coast of Palestine, okay? So he knew it was going to be... So again, I have to speculate a little bit, but for some reason he sends at least the two Asian traveling companions back to their native area. And I would assume because they have connections, and if they're trying to find a boat, a ship to set sail on to get back, that they might be the helpful ones, right? With the local customs and the knowledge of different people and connections. All right. Either way, anytime you have a team with diverse individuals, you have a strategic advantage in accomplishing God's purposes. That's what the church is. It's a team of a bunch of diverse individuals united as one so that we can accomplish God's plans and purposes in this life on this earth as his witnesses. And we all get to work together in that. And that's exactly how his team is working in this context as well. So Paul's ministry team provided a strategic advantage and safety for his journey, and it was a symbol of God's faithfulness and the unity of the church. How cool is that? Paul understood, probably more than most, that Christian ministry is always done best in teams. Christian ministry is meant to be a team sport. Christian ministry also has a time limit. So we need to get going. There there needs to be a sense of urgency. Now, I don't say that to scare you or freak you out, but let's just think about it. Let's work through this. Look at verses 7 through 12. Folks, I don't know how to be any more straightforward than to just say time is limited. And that's true individually for each one of us. That's also true in terms of this age coming to an end, all right? So we see this time limitation emphasized in verse 7. And look at what Luke writes, the inspired author. He says, On the first day of the week, so they had circled back around, I don't have the map up, they had circled back from Corinth, back around to Macedonia to Philippi, and then he had sent at least Tychicus and Trophimus across the, the water over to Troas, I think, probably, to start working on finding a ship, right? So then they come after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they come over to Troas behind these guys, okay? And they're only there seven days a week. And I don't know if that's how long it took to get the ship ready to sail or whatever. But they're in Troas, they're in there for a week. And it says on the first day of the week, this is the end of their time together, but it's the first day of the week, meaning Sunday, the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. It says on the first day of the week, when we were gathered, we, that's Luke, he's there, when we were gathered together to break bread, I think that's communion, all right? There was also a meal shared, we'll see later on, but I think he's talking about communion and fellowship with communion around a meal. But it says, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So he has a limited amount of time, right? So he prolongs his message until midnight. So he has seven days in Troas, and folks, he knew something that we often don't think about. He knew that he may never see this church family again. He may never come back to Troas. And especially as he starts heading to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit is like giving him these, these messages that like you're going to be bound and imprisoned and, and all this terrible stuff's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. Uh, he knows that he might not make it back to Troas. So he has a week. And, and, um, and so he makes time to gather together with those Christians for communion and encouragement. He doesn't say, oh man, I've been traveling hard these last couple days. I need to take a break. I'm just going to go rest for a while while they get the ship ready. He says, no, no, I'm going to pour into these brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this is one of the first references to Christians gathering on Sundays for worship and fellowship and teaching. Isn't that cool? So you know how we're gathering on a Sunday today and the church has gathered on Sunday, Resurrection Day, Lord's Day uh, for the last 2,000 years? This is one of the first references to that. 
So we too, if I can jump over to us from Paul, we too must be making the most of our time together, not just with anybody, but specifically in this context with other Christians. We have to make the most of our time with one another. Not just on Sundays for an hour and a half, but all throughout the weeks. We must realize that our time is limited. But God is unlimited. God has no limitations. So as we feel that sense of urgency that our time is limited, which is true, let's also remember that our hope is in a God who has no limits, okay? He can do anything, even in the most brief, shortest amount of time. I mean, that's how I came to faith in Christ. It was during a 45-second prayer that a guy was praying over a cheeseburger in a pub in Fort Worth. And all of a sudden, the lights came on, and God like, made it clear to me that I was not... I had never trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had never believed in Him. I had heard about Him, Right? But I didn't know he died for my sins on the cross. Or at least I didn't believe it. I didn't believe I needed a Savior. And in 45 seconds in a prayer over a cheeseburger, I accepted Christ as my Savior. That I was a sinner in need of one. And that he was my Savior. Right? My life changed in a 45-second prayer over a cheeseburger. Can God do stuff in short amount of times? Yes. Absolutely. He does it all the time. Sometimes he delays for his good purposes, and that's fine. But he can certainly do things in a short amount of time. And so we should be expecting the most of our time together. Don't go, well, I can't spend a month with that person, so we're never going to be able to accomplish. No, just go in with hope in the unlimited power of God that he can use. You know, it's the fishes and loaves. He can take your lunch and feed 5,000 plus people with it. All right. He can do the same with our time. All right. Look at verses 8 through 12. Again, I'm not going to read this. I'll just kind of walk through it. So back in verse 7, we saw Paul preaching long into the night. And then there's this, it's, he's, <laughs> some of your translations will say he's a lad. He's probably a boy in Troas between like 8 or 9 years old and like 14 years old. So he's like one of my son's age, okay? And you can imagine the preacher is preaching the longest sermon of his life. It's going like well past midnight. And here's this like 10, 11, 12-year-old kid in this kind of dark I mean they didn't have electric lights right so it's like dark there's candles or torches sucking up all the oxygen you know he's trying to get a cool breeze out the third story window and he's just bored and tired and whatever he's probably been working all day and he falls asleep and he falls out of the third story window and dies that seems to be clear from the context and it's tragic, and it's sudden. Talk about time-limited and sudden things. So it's sudden, it's tragic. Uh, ironically, his name means fortunate one or lucky one. That's what Eutychus means. I love names in Scripture. It's just interesting how that works. But what does Paul do? He doesn't freak out, but he goes and, and he comforts this grieving church family by miraculously restoring the life of the boy in a way that looks a lot like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, who also resuscitate people. And so he comforts the, the grieving family by God doing this incredible miracle of restoration of life through him. And then even in this short amount of time, we see the Troas church both encouraged by Paul's message, because again, this is Paul, and he's like unloading 
the truth about the Hebrew Scriptures and how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ and what that means and what Christ has done and what He's doing and what He will do. And He's just, he's just encouraging them and He's teaching them. And so they get encouraged both by the, the message, but they also get another kind of encouragement in the form of comfort through this, this miracle that's done through Paul. And the miracle affirms the message which is happening in the, in the wake of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the Passover lamb being sacrificed. And it's where Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John says, I am the what? I am the life and the resurrection. And so the, the, the miracle of a restoration of life to Eutychus is actually uh, legitimizing what he's teaching them in his message. And so it's all working together for their encouragement and their comfort and their upbuilding. Because God is unlimited, folks, we should pray that he would make the most of our time together. I don't care if it's you grabbing coffee with someone or, um, you know, taking your wife on a date or whatever it is. We should pray that God would make the most of our time knowing that he can. And we should expect to be encouraged by Christ-centered messages. I don't ever want you to come here on a Sunday and go, man, Ben's preaching again. (laughs) Like, where's that stable of preachers that he can start, you know, uh, come in here going, I'm going to see God's word today, right? Even if you don't hear a thing I say, just look behind me or on the sermon handout and expect that God would use whatever passage is there, regardless of what I say or not, to build you up and encourage you and convict you. And and just like Paul pointed out, scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for all those things. So expect that from Christ-centered messages but also expect to be comforted by the miraculous work of God among us as we live together in Christian community. What do I mean by that? Expect to be comforted by the miraculous work of God among us as we live together in Christian community. Does that mean every time a tragedy happens that it'll be immediately reversed in this life? No. But sometimes the miracle of God's miraculous work amongst us is the church family coming alongside us in our tragedy and encouraging us and praying for us and just being with us, loving us, supporting us, encouraging us. Sometimes, bless you, sometimes the the miracle uh, is simply perseverance. It's the Spirit of God persevering us in our uh, relationships, whether you're married or not, uh, persevering us in doing what Christ has called us to do. But expect the comfort of seeing God at work in his church as we, as we live together in Christian community. That should be our expectation. All right, so we have a limited time for Christian ministry, so let's make the most of our time and expect our unlimited God to meet us in amazing ways. All right, one of my greatest frustrations in life and ministry <clears throat> is that I don't feel like I get to spend enough time with people. I love spending time with people. And that includes every single person in here. Whether it's your first time, I want to go get coffee with you. I want to hear your whole story. I want to learn about you and how you came to faith in Christ or if you came to faith in Christ or what questions you're wrestling with. And if you're a member of our church, I want to get to know you. I want to, I want to eat dinner with you. I want to have you over. I, you know, if it's my family, like I, I want to spend time with my wife. I don't ever feel like I have enough time to spend with her, you know? And sometimes we need conversation cards because we get a little rusty at communicating uh, in all the life and logistics of parenting. But 
but I never feel like I have enough time with people. And I never feel like I have enough time for specific people, like I said, my wife, each one of my kids, not just my kids together, but with William or with Hannah or with Brantner. I never feel like I have enough time for each one of those guys or gals. I never feel like I have enough time with my extended family members. My brother's sitting right here. We had lunch this week. I want to, I want to have like five lunches with him next week just to continue our conversation and spend more time together. And that's true of our church family. That's true of our neighbors, some of whom are our church family, which is cool. Uh, it's true of people I just meet at coffee shops and bank lobbies and wherever else God opens a door to relationship. I want to spend time with people. And I don't believe that I need to spend time or any of us need to spend the same amount of time with all people. I mean, for me, like my priority has to be, even as a pastor, my priority has to be my wife and my three kids. That has to be my priority. And it, it, it's not always that way. And it's, it's sad when that happens. I mean, sometimes you just have hard weeks and there's a lot going on with ministry or life or whatever else. But, but by and large, that's my priority. So I don't, I'm not saying you need to spend time with a person in the bank lobby as much as with a spouse or kid, right? That's not the point. Um, but it's that, and maybe you have this in common with me, it's that every relationship feels like it's shorted on time. And I think when you start to think about that and you start to feel the consequence, the weight of that, it makes you second guess how you spend your time. You know what I mean? But over the last couple of weeks, I'll just give you a couple examples of, of how I've realized how much I appreciate spending uh, uh, time. If you think about it in grammar, time without a period, time with a comma or time. with What's that little thing with the three dots? That's the kind of time. What is it? No, no, no. The three dots. Horizontal. Ellipsis. Thank you. And I was an English major. I didn't even know that. Uh, that's what I want my time to feel like. The sentence going into the ellipsis, not the sentence with like the hard period. You know what I mean? So just in the last two weeks, two weeks ago, Stacy and I got to use a gift certificate that we won. What was it? Four years ago, Abby, at the Young Life fundraiser for this little boutique hotel in the domain. Like literally, I think they had just built the domain and we get this gift certificate. We're like, yeah, we're going to use that. And then COVID hit and all life, whatever. Uh, so we finally got to use that two weeks ago, and it was so much fun just to hang out with her, eat meals, and just the two of us, and get to talk and get to catch up. And again, we had to bring conversation cards because <laughs> it's been kind of rusty. We didn't write, quite know what to talk about when we weren't planning kid pickups and drop-offs and things. But it was a really precious time, and it was our 15th. We had to delay our 15th wedding anniversary, so that's what we did for our 15th wedding anniversary. So it was really fun. Um, but that uninterrupted time. Another example was Carl. Carl calls me up on Thursday. and He's like, hey, I'm going hiking at St. Edward's Park. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yes, I do. And so last week we went, we went hiking. And I, was, I, I told him this, but I also praised God. I was like, God, thank you that he even thought to like call me to see if I want to go hiking. And so we spent a couple hours down at St. Edward's Park. And it was so much, we almost got bit by like five different snakes. I don't know how that happened. It was like some sort of weird spiritual attack going on or something. But anyway, we spent all this time just walking around, sweating on this hike over in St. Edwards Park. And we got to have great conversations. We got to catch up on life. Um, we got to talk. Like he, he asked this question. He even asked me, he was like, I've been wondering about the canonicity of the New Testament. What do you think about that? And I was like, what do I think about that? I was like, I got to totally nerd out on how we got the New Testament and like the historical context and the doctrine and all this stuff, and it was so much fun because I didn't have to go, oh, God, I've got to rush over here. Golly, you know, oh, I've got to get to my car and get to this appointment. It was like we just had this time. And that's what I picture Paul doing with Tychicus and Trophimus and Timothy and Titus 
I mean, they're, they're, they're walking thousands of miles at the end of all these journeys together and on ships just sitting there sailing together, having these kind of conversations around the campfire at night. It's the same way I think about Jesus and his disciples. Time is precious and time spent together is important. That's the point. So our Christian ministry is to make time to comfort and encourage and sharpen one another in the church, regardless of what that looks like for each one of us. I get it. Our Christian ministry is going to look different based on our spiritual gifts and our opportunities and everything else. But regardless of that, we all need to make time for each other. And when we do, we will feel more and more like we're part of a team. Guys, this is one of the reasons I discourage people from trying to attend multiple churches. I'm not trying to call you out, but you need, you need more time with the people in one church. You don't need to split your time between two or three. You know, as much overlap as we can get, it's important, okay? We will feel, as we do that, we'll feel more and more like a team. When I spent that time... Let me start out with my wife. When I spent that time with her, I felt more and more like a team. Like we say that often, like it doesn't feel like we're on the same team or on the same page, but spending that time together helped me feel more like we we're in this together. We're on a team with a friend like Carl, spending that time with him, talking, catching up, sharing life, t- working through questions together. Felt like we were on a team. It was really cool. So Christian ministry is a team sport with a time limit. So make every effort to group up and get going. Um, So here's two simple application questions for the end here. Who can you team up with and how can you make time to spend with others? So first of all, who can you team up with? Y'all have to answer this for yourselves, okay? I can't answer this for you. Who can you team up with? And maybe that's serving on a ministry team on Sunday morning, like volunteering with one of our kids' ministries. I hear Ashley say all the time, she wants our Sparrows teachers to feel like a team. She wants our our nursery uh, leaders to feel like they're on a team to, to call each other and, and substitute for each other and, f- and pray together. That's one of the reasons we asked you to get here at 930 before the service is just so you can, yeah, look at the lesson and make sure the, the classroom's set up. That's important. But also just to pray by name for the kids in your class. Pray that God would grow them up to be the godly young men and women that he created them to be, you know, and feel like you're a part of a team. Pray together, spend together. So whether that's a ministry team, um, reach out, get to know those volunteers. Again, meet with them, pray with them. Maybe that's just being in a men's or women's discipleship group that meets every other week, okay? With two, three, four other guys or gals, all right? Then be consistent, right? Show up even when you don't feel like it or you're tired or you had a long day the day before. Um, show up, be consistent. You know Why? Because it's through that consistency that you'll build a relationship, depth of relationship, relational equity, trust, and you'll be able to feel more like a team. And you will be a team with them as you pray for one another, encourage one another, pray that God would give you boldness to share your faith with other people that he's put in your life, all those things. Second question, how can you make time to spend with other Christians? And again, that may be as simple as faithfully and consistently participating in a men's or women's Bible study or or a discipleship group. Or maybe coming early to help on Sundays with our AV or our setup or something like that. And just, just being here to talk with the other volunteers and get to know them. Or lingering after the service to chat and not racing off. I know sometimes you have to race off. That's fine. But, but lingering when you can, okay? And maybe that means clearing your schedule a bit. Hey, let me rephrase that. That's going to mean clearing your schedule a little bit. Okay? 
so that you can invite a fellow waysider over for dinner or set up a play date with another mom of a kid your kid's age and y'all can watch them play in the playground and talk and get to know each other more. Or inviting a guy on a hike at St. Edward's Park or inviting your spouse on a date or even a double date with another wayside uh, couple. I'm going to close with one of my favorite verses. And, and the reason I'm going to close with this is because it speaks to the importance of Christians teaming up for Christian ministry. But it also especially talks about that in the context of recognizing that our time is limited. Someone quoted it to me just this last week at our men's discipleship group, I think. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And I'll close with this. The author of Hebrews writes, Let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. And then it says this in 25, Not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is drawing near? That's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord that the Hebrew Scriptures talk about so often. When Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the conquering King and Judge of all humanity, will return to this earth to reward us for our faithfulness and following Him in this life on this earth and to bring judgment to people that have rejected His salvation. That, the whole Scripture from first page to last page talks about that and so it's true and so our time is limited jesus is coming back every orthodox christian for the last two thousand years has agreed that christ is bodily returning to the earth at some point in the future now there's a lot of you know conversations about when and how and what the order of events will look like and all that stuff but every orthodox christian for the last two thousand years has believed in the bodily return of christ at some point in the future and that day is coming folks. So in other words, our time is limited. So let's make the most of our time. And that means teaming up with one another so that we can be the absolute most effective we can be at accomplishing God's plans and purposes in and through our lives and in and through the life of this church.